Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. This is Geert once again uh, on NBN's Drugs Addiction and Recovery podcast. Um, today, I'm talking to Alexandra, Alexandra Bartoszka. Um, hi, Alexandra. I'm so glad we can, uh, we can talk today. Hi, thank you for having me here. So um, I, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, the book's called um, Treating Heroin Addiction in Norway, uh, The Pharmaceutical Other, um, published by Routledge just earlier this year. And it's, um, I would say, well, uh, no, I, I'll leave you to, to uh, introduce the, the book in a, in a moment. But um, before we get to the content, maybe, maybe you could uh, tell us a tiny bit more about your um, academic professional background, so to say, and also how you uh, got to the current topic. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm a social anthropologist. I did my master at the University of Oslo, and uh, and I've been engaged with medical anthropology since then, uh, actually. And uh, then I did my PhD in social work and social policy at the Oslo Met- Metropolitan University. And um, and that's where I did my my project, which this book is based on. And um, and now I'm at the Faculty of Social Studies at another specialized university, also in Oslo, uh, working as associate professor here. And um, um, how I came to study the addiction, it uh, as, as usually as by coincidence a bit. <laughs> But uh, I was always interested and engaged with, as I said, medical anthropology and how the state and health services and professions are shaping our lived experiences and how they're shaping and reproducing deviances and our ways of thinking about normality and what's no, what's you know, normal body, what's what's normal life, and what's uh, how we should live our lives, both you know bodily corporally and socially and um and uh, drug and addictions uh i was sitting in a train one day reading a newspaper and i was reading about 
herring, um, herring clinic in Denmark. And I was wondering how does it look in Norway? And uh, it was 2014, 10 years after we had uh, substance treatment reform when the when people with uh, substance disorders or addictions or problems received patient rights. So then I realized that I I know nothing about this field and nobody wrote about this field and I want to see how the you know how patient rights actually what kind of impact did they have and how does it you know Norwegian welfare society and state responds to addiction problems etc. So I went into the field with you know as as real anthropologists with no previous knowledge about addiction and drugs etc. So so that's how it started. And I'm doing my PhD at the social policy department and social work. So it kind of uh, was a good match for for the interest of the social work professions. Mm. Yeah, I, I see. Um, and um, what's interesting about your your project, as you as you describe it uh, right now, it's it's a very broad um, broad project with with and you spoke to spoke to many people but in the end the book itself it's actually more or less about one person of course mm. there's the big background of all the institutions and how uh, as you say um how they shape what is what is normal and how the individual uh, has to uh, deal with those institutions um could you could you say a bit more because we'll we'll talk about this this individual uh, the this uh, woman called Siv uh, mm. in a moment but um, could you tell us a bit more about the the broad research project like what kind of people did you speak to? Mm. Well, so, so I started as said with the really huge question: How does the patient rights affect people with addiction? And uh, and I started to 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 approach this field through you know various organizations doing doing uh, work with uh, drug use etc and then I started to talk to people who and I and then I met Sif actually uh, because somebody told me that she knows someone who is struggling with her substitution treatment and she's uh, quote applying her patient rights to um, to to get the right medication, so of course I was uh, intrigued, and uh, and and then I I went and uh, met Sif, which uh, who is the person in the book, and through Sif actually she kind of opened the whole field, and she kind of designed the field for me because it was through her personal story I got. Uh, uh, got in touch with her friends, with other professions, with other researchers, with other people uh, engaged or working or being patients in opioid substitution treatment. So the whole project kind of started with with Siv, but then I, I, um, my whole field work kind of covered seven, eight patients with this type of problems as Siv experiences this book. But then for the book, I kind of uh, edited the old story to make it more clear. So I so I talked and observed and uh, did the you know ethnographic uh, traditional fieldwork you can see with with patients in treatment and outside 
the treatment. And I was traveling through the whole Norway because much many of patients had their treatment teams in other parts of the Norway, or that that's why I called it person-centered multi-sided fieldwork because I was following one person, but but all those individuals has had um, their networks all over the. Uh, the Norway. So I was kind of following person, but also had to change the site of where their care was happening. So that's kind of the view. And I was doing it through two years, I guess. Hmm. Mm-hmm, I see. Um, and well, the obvious relation of the the obvious question now is um, who who is uh, who is Siv? Um, and maybe you can tell a tiny bit of, uh, of her, her, maybe her situation and her, her, her background and perhaps also your relationship with her. Mm. Well, so Siv was, uh, when I met her, uh, I mean, the book is kind of retrospective of our meetings, but also when I met her, she was currently in opioid substitution treatment, with, which is, treatment for people who had heroin or have heroin addiction on dependence. And she was um, using and being addicted to heroin for like 20 years before I met her. And uh, she was in treatment in methadone and she was in various treatment for uh, uh, for a few years. And uh, the last treatment she received was with morphine, which she received from her psychiatrist. And when I met her, she was uh, transferred to opiate substitution treatment where the doctors wanted to change her medication. Despite the, what we can call, good results, as they wrote in the reports, despite uh, stabilized situation, both like socially, personally, economically, etc., after three years, uh, the doctors wanted to change the, her treatment modality. And when I met Siv, she was in in the process of complaining. She said complaints to the health boards, to you know the all the relevant instances uh, uh, regarding her treatment. So I was following her struggle through those two years to keep uh, to keep morphine and not to change to, into buprenorphine. The other preferred modality mm. yeah yeah i see um maybe because you already uh, uh hinted to it maybe you can uh, explain um what uh her situation is when it comes to uh the dichotomy between the uh, addiction and dependence because that's a very important mm. distinction for you i guess yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's that's why I say she, she was addicted because when I met her, I would define her more as dependent, not addicted. And I I do I do make a point about it in in uh, in the book because we in Norwegian language we do not have we do not have language for these distinctions between addiction as you know overwhelming engagement with drugs or any other substances which does influence your life to to such a degree that you are you know um, damaging your social and personal relation. You are not functioning socially, economically, etc. Why dependence is the kind of non over non overwhelming engagement with drugs, which uh, was a case for Steve, who was 
consuming morphine every day, twice a day, but she had a good life. She had a family. She was doing some small jobs. She was paying her rent. You know, she she was uh, living her life without uh, without the overwhelming she experienced while she was addicted to heroin. Then, as she said, nothing else matters. And now she used opiates just to, you know, function well, to be a whole, whole human being, as she said, right? To be a normal, uh, normal, normal person, as as she uh, experienced it. And and we and in, in treatment we do not have this uh, this distinction. But both Sif and her friends they do their own language to. Uh, to uh, to distinguish between those two um, those two state, states of being, and they are really clear about it. She said she said that I I'm not she don't use uh, the term addicted, but she said I'm not hustling and rushing, right? So we use this picture when we are talking to students about what addiction is. So she we are talking about you know the Gollum from from um, Lord of the, of the Rings, my pressure, right? Nothing else matters. And 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 Sif was talking uh, about her previous addiction and engagement with heroin in those terms. But now she was stable and dependent, and and uh, and yeah, that's that's the distinction which was important for her, and that's why it had to be important to me as I was following her own understandings. Yeah, yeah, I see. Um, and in 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 that sense, it's it's interesting how her because in in in, uh, in the essence, her problem is that she wants to use morphine because that works best for her to to live a normal life. But the program as set up by Norwegian government, I guess, or Norwegian law and the clinical practitioners doesn't really allow for that divergence from from uh, the usual mm. substances um can you can you maybe because you you the i think it's the third chapter uh, it's called pharmaceutical atmospheres and and in an i well if i translate that into my own words it's about the the social the political and the moral context in which a certain phenomenon uh, finds itself maybe also the history mm. um could you tell us a tiny bit more about the about the development of or about the history of uh, opioid substitution therapy in Norway. Sure. So, um, in comparison to Europe or uh, the North America, Norway was pretty late with opioid substitution treatment because of the tradition uh, we had, both politically uh, uh, regarding, but also clinically and socially, um, uh, tradition for uh, for non medical treatment a kind of treatment of uh, substance use and uh, addiction without using medications so it was first in 1997 when the hiv epidemic has come to norway or kind of we started to to, to have some instance, instances of uh, contention then uh, it was it became uh, allowed to use methadone for people who were uh, who were infected with HIV first, and then the program started to be national. And in 2001, it became more uh, more avail- available for other people who are not 
uh, infected with uh, with HIV, and in 2001 we we had uh, which, yeah never mind uh, we started to also import uh, or introduced buprenorphine and other another medication and after that we had another medication so the development started to go kind of par- in par- parallel with other other countries but because it was pretty new in norway also the professional uh, professionals working with addiction was uh, in many ways, unprepared for this kind of population. And in particular, that we received the substance treatment uh, reform when patient, with people with addiction received patient rights and was transformed to health care was really a uh, really huge surprise to many of the both nurses and the doctors because earlier it was social workers who were working with this population so it was kind of combination of uh, new phenomena new ways of seeing addiction treatment and and substitution and uh, new patient population which suddenly arrived from day one uh, at, at the you know at the table of the doctors not prepared to handle it is my guess Okay, and so it was it was part of social work before. Um, was it also yeah. like an outright criminal issue before? You mean were the were the users just criminalized before? Uh, before yeah, they the still started? they still are. Mm-hmm. So would they? Would then yeah. So that's also one of the point of of the book, right? That you know becoming a patient and becoming a, a subject of medical intervention doesn't mean that all the other contexts like criminalization disappear because CIF was still under the criminal, um, uh, you know, under the, uh, she, she was still criminalized if she wanted to use any other, uh, any other substances than those prescribed. So the situation uh, regarding criminal issues is still the same. Okay, that's. Mm. I found that um, well because the the key. Mm. Sorry, well no, the 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 key question of your book seems to be, um, it revolves about the, this this patient's agency, mm. um, because well the story is basically about in in negotiation and in in a sort of battle with the with the uh, institutions, um, and. Yeah, on the one hand, you you make a very strong statement that to just focus on the on the factors that have determined Siv's situation, so to say, is not not necessarily the the only story. It's because Siv, in in located in her own life, feels that she has a very strong agency and that she's mm. dealing with her situation in, in with all the force she can. Um, but would you say that um, the the maybe the 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 law or or the medical industry so to say do do they see a drug user as a full agent so to say are they are they fully responsible for themselves or partly responsible or how do they see that hmm. I, <laughs> I don't know i don't i i i haven't spoken to you know pharmaceutical hmm. industry so i'm not sure what they think but um what kind of agency do they ascribe to uh, you, you know, they, they do sell the narrative of agent, of, you know, responsible subject, like patients that uh, 
the whole story about addiction as a disease is driving pharmaceutical industry without this discourse and this story they would not be able to prepare medications right and to sell story about the disease you have to acknowledge patients agency because that's how you do this right and mm-hmm. um and also because it is uh, uh yeah so 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 i guess uh, in, indirectly, they do uh, ascribe some kind of agency to patients, but I I've never thought about it actually. Uh, so no, that's I don't all right. Know. Maybe I was going on a tangent. It's uh, <laughs> um, and and okay, may, maybe um, how would you how would you say that um, when it comes to the pharmaceutical atmosphere, so to say, how would you say? Um, the the phenomenon of OST is currently viewed by, I guess, wider society or maybe maybe politics. Is it a is it a salient issue, so to say? If, is it? Is it a, a a pressing issue, so to say? Is it, is uh, our political opinions very much divided on the on the existence uh, of it? It's change. I mean, you know, this the whole drug and addiction field. It's always polarized, right? Because it depends. First, what do you think of the drug use in general? And it would always influence how you think about treating addiction. And uh, but it's it has changed since the the first you know the first notions and discussion about introducing methadone and buprenorphine. The whole discussion about you know state as a dope uh, as a dealer you know medicine as a dope. The whole discussion is kind of. it's not uh, totally absent, but in a clinical and professional setting, it's less, uh, less how we call it, less intense or, or less loaded, at least you know explicit because you can uh, uh, you can track it through the practices, right? That they are still treating medicines as kind of dope because they can you know you can get high, for instance, right? But uh, but in the general general public in no way has changed kind of this understanding a lot. I mean, this is also because of the efforts made lately through uh, towards the drug policy reform when the disease story engaged a lot of people, right? So while you tell the public that this is a disease, so people also change the way they see the medicine. So it's changing, but... Uh, but yeah, so I did, you know, uh, yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Maybe because the 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 habits of the of the clinicians, so to say, are, are mm. very much shaping Siv's experience, I guess, and in extent uh, the experience of many of the uh, users that are. Um, uh, enrolled in these programs, could you maybe explain the the, the concept of pharmacotopia? Uh, mm, yeah. Because I think it's 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 rather key uh, to to understand what happens to these people. Yeah, it is. And um, well, what I mean with pharmacotopia is this kind of idealized uh, uh, image of pharmaceutical efficiency or effects. Like the the you know the story about the uh, the universalism of uh, of of medic of medicines which are uh, 
reproduced and believed uh, in the clinical settings. And it's overly optimistic view of how medicines are working because they do follow the standard patients and standardized individuals and are based on clinical trials and clinical studies which follow you know all the rules you have to do clinical studies but they are always based on kind of you know group and population thinking and we always have such individuals as SIF or some other individual who you know who are at the margins of those studies and those effects or efficacies and um and uh, and that you know Steve's story challenged this pharmacotopic view of what do we mean but medication is working because it was always both interesting for me and she also wanted to you know get understanding what the doctors mean by buprenorphine working what do you mean by methadone working it doesn't work for me but it works for somebody else. My effects are your side effects and your side effects are what I want, right? So pharmacotopia is this, you know, uh, idealized imaginary of clinical work or clinical effects, which, you know, doesn't really match with the individual experiences in real life, post-post market, I would say. Mm. Um, and and okay, in, the, in that case, I wonder because I, I understand the mechanism, but maybe it's good to make the contrast with mm. with a different medication. For instance, if you take something like like insulin, something mm. sort of well basic in my opinion. If you take mm. insulin, your blood sugar go go plummets. Um, mm. Why why isn't I would say in that in such a case, pharmacotopia or the, this image of uh, medical efficacy is more uh, legitimate than in the case of uh, OST, uh, opioid substitution therapy. Why, why is that difference so big? Because if you give some, somebody buprenorphine or methadone, their addiction right. problem isn't necessarily solved. Yeah, it's depending what you are searching from medication, right? I think there are much more differences within the population doing drugs and there are various reasons for why they are using uh, opioids or heroin or methadone. Why with, you know, insulin, it may be much more homogeneous, but I know that many of anthropologists working with insulin would also could argue the difference, right? And we know from the, you know, study of Anita Hardon and all people working with the history of pharmaceuticals as a, you know, every Every medicine has their own effects depending on the individuals. So, uh, but because, you know, regarding agency, right, because we tend to uh, ascribe some, you know, dirty motives or uh, uh, suspect people with addiction, then those differences became uh, put under the suspicions too. And that's why doctors are kind of uh, strengthening their own uh, story because you know if, if if your story as a clinician is threatened so the uh, so uh, so you are strengthening this this story even more right so even if you you are you know understanding that okay they are individual uh, uh, differences in uh, in people affect but we cannot allow that you know every addicted person comes to me and tell about their own preferences right so uh, 
So I don't know. Did I at least uh, experience that? that there is kind of threat to the story, to the clinical story, because as Sif knows what works for her, so she's challenging, you know, the clinical study, which say something else. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with this um, s- sort of su- suspicion, um, mm. um, uh, the, this image that you, that you have of somebody who uses this kind of drugs, opioids, for instance, that you feel like, okay, well, maybe there might be some kind of part of their personality that's just mm. on the hunt for another kind of high um, mm. kind of rush. Mm. Um, but it's also right, you know, uh, you can also, in using opioids, you can do some measurements in blood, right? In in blood, you can measure, you know, how people react. And that's, that's also what clinical studies say about the difference that, you know, we don't see any difference in measurements of your, you know, uh, opioid receptors, coverage, et cetera, et cetera. But people still don't feel well. And it's, you know, it, it's related to the individual understanding of normality, right? And your previous experiences, because my my needs may be totally different than your needs because maybe I experienced something bad in my past and I need to, you know, deal with it on the other level. And that's why I need one milligram more of buprenorphine than you, right? Even if my blood measures say anything else that it's, you know, uh, okay. So I think that's, you know, again, the what is well-being and what is the threshold of well-being, right? What do you need to function better to get energy to you know, to do your everyday stuff. Yeah, I found that a very, very strong, um, I think it was citation, I don't remember the person's name, but you you cite this other person um, that you speak to and they take one of the, one of the magic, sorry, that's my doorbell. Oh, yay! Uh, <laughs> I won't open that and that's for somebody else. <laughs> um, anyway, no, they, they, you, you ask them, is there, is your medication working? Mm. And they, actually give like this very nuanced take of that that uh, on the one hand yeah the the kind of cravings and the what would you call that the withdrawal effects are gone mm. but i guess they well they don't make yeah, the second part yeah. ex- explicit but but they they also s- say that okay well the reason why i started taking opioids in the first place that isn't helped in any way by the medication right um, Mm, mm. I found that a very strong uh, illustration of, the, of this part. Um, yeah, and that's also why, you know, the, the, the quote of Sif, which I found very strong when she said that I was never healthy on buprenorphine, right? That, okay, I don't have, uh, I don't shake, I don't have, you know, anxieties, I don't have uh, withdrawals and I'm not sweating, but I'm not healthy, right? So it's also, again, what... What do, what do we mean by working, as one of my interlocutors said? What does it mean that medication works? And for whom, right? And how would, do we measure it? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah agreed. Okay, but then, then the question arises, I guess, um, how might uh, this kind of um, um, working, the, this definition of a working medicine beyond just the, the first uh, biological first physical effects is do you think there might be a way to incorporate incorporate that in in the clinical studies as such or maybe in the clinical practice yeah but clinical studies and then practice they are dependent on the measurable sizes right how you can measure well-being 
And it also is fluctuate, fluctuating, right? Because it can vary from day to day, etc., etc. So, um, but yeah, of course, you you as the the new working of the. Uh, um, the revised version of the guidelines for OST now, which is under the hearings, should incorporate, for instance, more more qualitative studies, which would support the idea of individuality and the well-being, which is not, which we are not able to measure in in numbers. But uh, so we'll see if they will uh, became uh, you know ba- knowledge ba- knowledge base. But uh, but it is difficult to uh, to satisfy clinical studies and uh, guidelines without measurements and you know people also don't have language for it because this is so bodily and corporal so this is really difficult to translate and to uh, uh, to put the words on what do you mean <laughs> it's working I'm now fine right and it can't the only way I see it could be possible give people chance to, you know, choose the medication they would like, they prefer, uh, and uh, and let's see if they, you know, start complaining, start, you know, urging for something else, if they start to do, uh, you know, start uh, or stop using other medication and just follow the, the prescripted ones, right? So I think to, you know, broaden the window of opportunity to uh, to to check what what actually works for the individual i guess it could be you know to give people a chance yeah, and then that's again. what happened with sif she was given chance part- ironically right during those two years she was struggling at the same time she was allowed to keep staying on morphine which was arguing is very risky for her at the same time she was allowed to stay in it and she you know Maybe that's also why she was able to win this uh, this uh, this struggle because she kind of uh, uh, confirmed with her you know body and good result that her choice was good for her. Yeah, yeah. So that that might be um, that might suggest that at least in the yeah that at least in some cases more autonomy for the the patient first of all but also for the uh the i don't know the gp or the principal mm. clinician on a case uh, there should be a bit more autonomy and a bit more uh, possibility for trying things out at least in well yeah and i'm very happy that you say it because it's not always because that giving t- an full autonomy to patients or whatever the you know decisive power to the patients has also the box side so i'm not you know promoting for for you know patients becoming doctors because this is also some as i also write in the book that there are some part of knowledge that we do not have access to and that also see and and other did trust the doctors but the gps right who are much more able to have a better relationship with patients than the doctors in specialized healthcare when the opioid substitution treatment in norway is they should definitely got much more autonomy because they are able, you know, family doctors, etc. That they could, they they know they they have much more capacity to work also in you know social work context. They know family, they know context, they they know uh, other uh, other troubles they have, etc. So 
absolutely. And we we see also changes here in Norway that uh, GPs are starting to uh, to you know to tell their story and their needs and want to receive much more patients. Mm-hmm. Not inter- everybody, right? But mm. you, you you mentioned the, that it um, that the GPs are also uh, quite. Key. No, that the GPs are also closer to the social work part. Would you would mm. you say that um, by the um, by putting the the OST more in a in a, a, a in the the medical field, um, it's also missing out on something. Would would you say that there were certain things that were better before the this change in, in Norwegian law? Uh, well, I, I would not say it was better, but uh, in. Um... In theory, uh, uh, OST is, you know, cooperation. You have this, you have GP, it's, it, it should be collaboration between GPs, specialized healthcare and social work. But in practice, you have both prestige and profession struggles, etc., and also time constraints. Uh, when in practice, it is medical uh, doctors at the end who are responsible for the, you know, for making the prescriptions. And in the, as such an ISIF case, social workers following her, they were really, really supportive of her choice. They really took a lot of struggle for SIF in front of the doctors. But in the end, it's the one who are making the prescriptions who have the decisive power. So if 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 the practice would be as it is meant, that it is a real cooperation between social work, GPs and specialized high high healthcare, it would be, you know, ideal situation with the patient in the center, etc. So it would be uh, great. But uh, and, and and that's also why we do have a lot of, uh, how we call it, uh, change of the, you know, a lot of social workers uh, and young doctors are switching from uh, uh, switching back from uh, uh, working in OST because they do feel they they do not have a lot of space to uh, to do good judgments because the rules and the guidelines are so strict that they feel that even if they you know know what's good for the patient, even if they know the whole story, they you know been with SIF in five years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so the rules are so uh, so uh, so difficult to exercise the discretion of how, how we call it that um, a lot of them quit. So we have a, a huge turnout now. How you call it? Turnover. Yeah, turnover. Yeah, mm. and then you you know new new professional comes which are unsure about how to proceed, so they stick to the guidelines, and the story repeats every time with many patients. Mm. Yeah, that's. Uh... But definitely more social work, but not only because you know we do need medical knowledge we do need me- medical uh, people because it is you know it, this is medicine we are talking about so uh, in the context when the drug are criminalized of course i have to say that because it is underlying everything we are talking about because if we do not have criminal issues so people do not need maybe to search to to apply for being patient to ust because they can get uh, legal substances without the regime that which treatment is um, uh, which treatment involves. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think so. Yeah. Um, um, 
it just makes me think i mean i'm i'm a lay person in this field but uh, uh um, i do see a parallel with uh, some acquaintances that for instance um they they take antidepressants or they take uh, some kind of uh what do you call it um ssr mm. blockers mm. um anyway uh, n- neurologically uh, active med- medication uh, in in correspondence with a or in in, in collaboration with a psychiatrist uh, and you see that with many of those kinds of medications where people are dealing with um, severe mental mental health issues that might be related to some kind of chemical imbalance in 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 their brain or that that's the that's part of the story at least um but you also also see a, a big back and forth and a real trial and error with all the different medications for instance antipsychotics or or well, antidepressants what have you um, that they try certain medication and then it's not working at all or it gives gives super bad side effects and and mm. so in 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 that situation sometimes it seems that that part of this uncertainty um, about how uh, pharmaceutically created uh, um, uh, medication in the end turns out uh, to work in an individual life like with with this kind of person of a psychiatrist it, it seems mm. to um, seems sort of to work at least the trial and error process i'm not saying that the problem is solved but at least Mm. the 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 bad medications are are filtered out yeah Uh, and that's 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 what i meant by giving a chance right and uh it's maybe not you know appropriate uh, language to to you know to describe the you know clinical procedure but that's that's what uh, what I meant that uh, when it comes to OST, you have you know two maybe three medications, and uh, often you are not asked about you know side effects or maybe we should go down or up with the dosage etc. So people do not have so many choices as in other as in other contexts and diseases etc. And you know and that's also why made many patients you know are still disappointed because they thought that now we are you know ordinary real patients because we have a patient's right so maybe we will have the opportunity also to try different medication to hear you know if i go to the doctor and take you know pain whatever pain medication he always asked how am how am i how how, how am i and uh, if i you know experience you know nightmares or whatever and then many of those patients do not get this treatment. And so trial and errors, yeah, should be <laughs> a lot. Mm. In particular, because, you know, this is, a, if we talk about population, this population of people who, you know, have been using all possible combinations, all possible dosages the last 20, 30 years of their lives. So the, you know, the fear of maybe we overdose patients with one milligram of methadone of buprenorphine, it's really um, strange to put it bluntly, you know, uh, because this is this is not, you know, reality uh, based fear because people, their bodies and they, you know, the, the bodies are so experienced and so, uh, uh, so, you know, uh, yeah, they are so experienced with the medication that uh, it shouldn't make any difference. Even if, you know, methadone and buprenorphine, they are different when it comes to risk profile, etc. in clinical studies. 
but in real life they do not differ if uh, if patients is not fornate uh, is not uh, when patient is not satisfied with medication they do handle uh, side effects or you know not working with other medications so they do combine and do the polydrug use etc so the risk profile of the uh, of the medication from clinical studies do not again match with the reality that people experience in their real life yeah yeah i guess these these individuals might also indeed be a bit more willing to take mm. different kinds of sm- yeah small mm. risks um mm-hmm. Okay, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground also perhaps be beyond the book, but um, uh, <laughs> it was all very relevant. Uh, so thanks for that. Um, I have a couple of more uh, questions. So I found your book extraordinarily uh, readable. It, and, and that's, of course, in part because of, well, it's, it's an anthropological study. So there will be a lot of narratives. And of course, uh, as a reader, we love narratives. Um, mm. But uh, uh, w- would you say that uh, that it would be a good idea for for um, is it, is it a method that might be applied to to other uh, fields of science? Because I, I um, you you give a lot of the, you, you sketch a lot of background and you give a lot of technical material, but in the end, the, like there's a big thread in there uh, sketching a, a personal story. Is this something that you yeah would say that that it might be useful for other fields as well? Mm. Or is this specific for anthropology? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. As you said, you know, ethnography. It, 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 we do believe that you know, uh, ethnographical descriptions and empirical description has a value in itself. That's why we. That's the one thing that we know. That uh, we know. I mean, at least I do, and I do appreciate empirical material as such, which would give me reflection and then and, and you know a ground for further analytical work that's one thing and um uh, and also to you know humanize humanize uh, or you know people we should people our you know studies and our material because much in particular in this field much of the studies and work i had to read to you know to get <laughs> to 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 familiarize with the field they do not Involve people, like you. You have or numbers or histories or uh, or anonymized stories, which are you know devoted from any uh, any uniqueness because you are you do want to present always the you know standardized patient or standardized story, so it could be helpful maybe in uh, in practical or clinical settings, etc. That you, you you can recognize yourself in it. So I would. Definitely uh, challenge any other disciplines to to give me more people, more stories, more real life, and and um, but you know this is a balance, of course, like not not too much story and that, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, evidently, evidently, and yeah. also do not be afraid to you know to because I had you know I I had some rants about Sif and how what kind of value it would have to present just one story. Right, and uh, so I would encourage people to not be afraid to to follow just a few or just one person, because through one person you can get a book, right? You can get so many stories because one individual life has so many layers, both politically, 
bodily, you know, socially, etc. So she was my, you know, she was my light into the field of OST, which I would not be able if I would take the other way around and started with, you know, well-defined field and start to find people there because it was it, it would define what kind of people I would find first and uh, and then it would uh, it, it would be totally different story I guess so here to the people mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah there's there's one final thing so you already uh, uh, touched upon the the recent changes in Norwegian um, drug-related laws on the, um, when it comes to criminalization and decriminalization of possession, I think, mm, or mm. use. I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, could you say a bit more about that and also whether whether and how that affects your, your own studies? Um, well, when I, when I did this project, so the, the, the discussions were not... I, I mean, the... The, the drug policy reform has been discussed, discussed in you know various various fora and uh, political parties was uh, uh, took initiatives here and there, but it was first for three years ago. I mean, it became a real issue, and the health minister decided to to um, to vote for the reform, which was not voted this year. Uh, so we are not going to have the reform. Um, at least now and uh, how does it change my you know my further work and um, my studies first people started to get interested in field of drugs right because now you can because of the discussion and because of the voting and uh, the whole the whole story people who has never had any meaning uh, or you know any opinion about drugs or had really strong opinions which were not knowledge-based as we can see so they they started to open to be more open to to you know new insights and and new stories and uh, and uh, in the clinics people are starting to be prepared that the, the situation in few years maybe will change and how do how are we going to react when we will not longer have this you know disciplinary um uh, disciplinary you know obligation or what you know the 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 way we see uh, our patient would lack the criminal perspective which they do also have to relate to because when they are prescribing medication they do have uh, to consider uh, how this medication can be for instance for instance be sold on the street etc etc and if you you know if you take the criminal judicial part from the pictures so it would uh, i i don't want to you know to know to read in the future but i think that it definitely would uh, change some narratives and some you know some moral conceptions of uh, of the drug use and uh, and then we of course we are going to we have to be prepared for what you know the disease making would uh, would end with because now we risk that everybody who are using substance use may be uh, defined as ill and diseased and this is also the darkest story 
darker part of the uh, medicalization story, right? Not every what I mean that not not everyone who are who is using substances becomes addicted or dependent. But as the reform was proposed, so it would end with everybody being defined as sick and you know in in chance of becoming a patient. So I think so I would like I would really like to open, you know, for for more discussions about uh, about the this is making of people who use substances in Norway because we are definitely lacking this discussion. Because mm. as you know, uh, Stefan Jonke said, as I write in the conclusion, what else can you do? You have the two choices right now. You have, or you are being criminal and get punished, or you are becoming patient and get treatment. And of course, most people who you know want well and have some kind of knowledge prefer treatment, but is it the way to you know see if could maybe have had better without treatment and without treatment you know regime and that's so on so another story speaking of other stories what are you mm. writing on uh, working on right now <laughs> no, speaking about drug reform i was following Steve actually after this project because she was engaged in uh in a, a user initiative uh, in the context of drug treat, uh, drug uh, policy reform because the user okay when health minister appointed the committee to you know the, uh, the working group to propose the legislation they invited two user representatives two user representatives, drug user representatives, um, which is okay in the political settings, but many of the drug users, if I should, if I can use, you know, general term, uh, were not satisfied with the choice of the minister. They meant that those representatives do not represent, uh, represent us, they are not real drug users, they do not stand for what we stand, and, you know, the whole representation uh, discussion suddenly burst out and some of the users including uh, including Siv, they uh, engaged and uh, organized uh, organized some protest and they organized a shadow committee uh, you know a group which uh, which wanted to deliver alternative report to uh, to health minister which would be based on the user voices and their own experience etc so i was working following Siv in totally different context, which was not treatment related, but drug and activist uh, uh, policy related. So it's kind of side effect of the original project and our relations that we were able to, you know, reconnect after some time. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm working about, uh, wrote an article about this shadow committee now, and now want to de- develop some, some, uh, some work on the representation of drug use and and then we see i'm done with the book so now i'm open for you know new inspiration Mm. really cool thank you very much for sharing um i think that's uh we covered so much so well thanks once again alexandra um and uh i hope to talk soon uh maybe over another book you never know yeah hope so thank you for having me